Welcome to Thinking Too Hard About Anime, an anime discussion podcast. It's a little bit of history, a little bit of analysis, and a lot of over-examining the Japanese creators we love so much. I am your co-host, Noah Carden, and joining me as always is... Aaron J. Shelton. And ladies and gentlemen, we got it. (laughs) (laughs) We, uh, We are returning for a special episode of... Hideaki Anno Domini, our, our second season uh, topic, to talk about Hideaki Anno's first live action film, Love and Pop. We have acquired a copy of it with English subtitles, um, and we have we have both watched it, and we are here to talk about it today. Mm-hmm. It is uh, it's quite the quite the film. <laughs> um, so we talked about Love and Pop a little bit on our His and Her Circumstances episode. Uh, So just as a refresher on that, um, this was, like you said, Anno's first live-action film that was created shortly after slash maybe during uh, him working on the first Evangelion movie, the end of Evan, working on the end of Evangelion. It is based on the novel Topaz 2, by Ryu Murakami. Uh, He wrote Audition. Topaz 1 was about BDSM in in Tokyo, uh, which he adapted into a movie called Tokyo Decadence, uh, sort of a softcore movie that he directed. And uh, Topaz 2 is a, I don't believe it's a direct sequel, uh, but it's similar topics, just a sort of different, uh, cast of characters, yeah. as we'll come to see. It was directed by Ano. Mm-hmm. It was written by Ano, as well as Akio Satsukawa, uh, who worked with Ano on Evangelion. Um, and then he did some, whatever a screenplay assistance means, uh, that's how he is billed uh, on the, I think, the first two rebuild movies for Evangelion. Uh, but that was Akio. Satsukawa's role. He also worked as an editor on Nadia. Oh. It seems like he did a little swap. So it seems like he's been with Anno for a minute. Music is by Shinkichi Mitsumune, uh, who also composed for Revolutionary Girl Utena, Fully Cooley, and uh, the, some of the more recent Yu-Gi-Oh! series. Is he the main guy for the pillows? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, no, he does not appear to be directly related to the pillows as a member of like the band or anything like that. I'm sure that there was some, um, if you are the composer, you probably pull in like music that you like to kind of, you know, score the, the film. So I would not be surprised. He was just like into the pillows. and was like, Hey, can we use some of their music? Cause there is a, a pillow song, uh, in this film, uh, from, uh, from an album that wasn't out yet. The song, uh, Like a Love Song, in parentheses, back-to-back, is featured in the film. Uh, It is from their 98 album, Little Busters. Uh, So given the time of production and uh, release, uh, that album would not have been out when both the movie was in production and when the movie came out. So uh, a little little preview of... At the time of, of upcoming Pillows music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we have Cinematography by Takahide Shibanushi. Uh, he worked as an assistant camera 
on the live action sections for End of Evangelion. So when Anno is po- is saying, hey, audience, you suck. <laughs> this guy was like <laughs> running tapes or pulling focus. Right. Uh, and it seems like he he's still working as a cinematographer. Uh, I think the one film that I recognized was an entry in the uh, in the Ringu franchise, uh, Ring Zero Birthday. The story, uh, as we talked about, follows a group of four teen girls uh, as they participate in Enjo Kasai or compensation dating. Basically, for money and gifts, they will go hang out with men. Uh, sometimes it's sexual. Sometimes it's just companionship. Um, and sort of Hiromi uh, is the lead girl that we follow around as she dives deeper into this world. Um, so Hiromi is played by Asumi Miwa. Of the things that I could recognize that maybe I think you, the audience, would know is that she did have a role in the live-action version of Uzumaki. It says here, uh, Shiho Ishikawa. I'm mad yeah. that I don't know who that is off the top of my head. Uh, it as looks far like as the character. Just kind of going off of the um, the billing, at least, it looks like she is like one of the tertiary characters. She is not one of the, the primaries. So we have uh, Karari, who plays Chisa Noda. Um, who was, she's the dancer? Yes. Yes, Chisa Noda is the, the dancer, so um, her character in the film is, uh, she starts taking dance lessons, like street dance lessons, and then gets really into it and wants to become a professional dancer. Mm-hmm. The one thing I recognized was a live-action TV series for GTO, great teacher Onizuka. Mm-hmm. Hirono Kudo played now Yokoi, who was the the girl uh who built her own computer she used her dating money to to build a pc <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but this seems to be her only film role that i could find and then yuki nakama played chiyoko takahashi uh sort of the 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 air quotes wiser more experienced girl of the group <laughs> she's a whole year older <laughs> so you know yeah uh, a lot of just very worldly, um, but she is a former Gravier idol. Yes, Gravier. Okay, so she is a former Gravier idol and singer. Um, she had a single, but like two years or so before this movie came out, she her single "Moonlight to Daybreak" uh, was released. It's fine. I think we watched, listened to it a little bit before we recorded. It's a it's a solid pop tune. Um, but she had. She is still a. She's a working actress. Um, she's probably the most of all the of the leads here. She's probably the mm-hmm. most prolific as far as work. Uh, she was also in Ring Zero Birthday, uh, Full Metal Alchemist, Final Transmutation. I don't know if she played. I think she played. She, the uh, mom. It looks like she plays the mom. She is <laughs> She plays a dead person. She plays a pile of goo. <laughs> uh, and she had a small role in the in Gamera 3, the Heisei era. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's cast and crew. I think that that's pretty much what I found. I don't know if there's any other bits so, and pieces you could add. There's one other person I want to mention uh, playing Captain EO or E-Censored, E-Star, whatever you want to call him is uh, Tadanabu Asano. Um, he is a very prolific 
uh, Japanese actor. Um, he was Kakihara in Ichi the Killer. Um, he was uh, Hogan in the Thor Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Um, he was uh, Raiden in the most recent Mortal Kombat movie. Uh, oh, shit. Among a bunch of other things. He is a very prolific actor. Um, and this is very early into his, his career. So it was, it was interesting to see him so young. Dude, uh, I did not recognize him at yeah. all. Yep. <laughs> um, there's also apparently a cameo by Megumi Hayashibara, a, a legendary voice actress that we have talked about plenty of times on the show. Um, she is one of the uh, telephone voices that we hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, those are the 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 main ones I kind of wanted to pick out that you didn't cover. I think no, I can't. I yep. I was like, eh, I'll just do the girls. That'll be fine. I didn't realize <laughs> this. Uh, look, we watched it on YouTube. <laughs> maybe not the. <laughs> we we watched it in a way that maybe didn't have the best resolution again off of a mini dv tape (laughs) a crisp 360p but uh uh, you know youtube's a very good uh bit rate yeah they they know how to compress things to the best to a to a high quality this movie might actually be better watching it on your phone yeah i i watched it on my tv yeah but still computer do you want to get to the the store the I guess the the advanced synopsis. Yeah, we can kind of go through the the plot. I think our primary girl, uh, Hiromi, um, dreaming like she she wakes up from a dream, and um, I think the kind of the main thing uh, we have to keep in mind about the the overall like formation of the plot, like how it's constructed, is that this all happens in a single day, but we get a bunch of like little flashbacks to nondescript previous times like she's remembering things but the main plot happens on july 19th 1997 it goes through the entire day so hiromi awakes from her dream and uh we we get some already some pretty wild uh cinematography from our 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 director and, and cinematographer where we get like first person views we get like Inside of like her shirt as she puts on a sweater views like nothing's being shown. Nothing like lewd is being shown. But at the same time, it is all very like both strange positioning and very personal sort of of, of camera views. But um, Hiromi like goes to get breakfast and, you know, we get to meet her, her dad, her mom and her elder sister. Um, Her dad rules. (laughs) yeah her dad's just Anno in like 10 more years yeah uh his we get to kind of peek in on him every now and then but he is building a a model train set in their their living room for the day while uh haromi's mother is off to uh to a swim meet where she has i think the breaststroke and the butterfly uh so she is she is competing in a swimming competition and uh her sister is packing up her things. Looks like she's about to move out for college or something like that. Um, but Hiromi has decided to go out with her friends for the day. Uh, July 19th, 1997 is a Saturday. Just to let you know, I looked that up because I was curious. Oh, nice. They, they uh, were accurate. Yes. Uh, but she decides she's going to go uh, to Shinjuku, 
I believe. Yes. Correct. Uh, Shinjuku with her friends to buy uh, a bathing suit for their summer vacation. Uh, so uh, on, on the way, we, we get little bits of like insight into uh, Haromi's life, um, like what she believes in, things like that, how... You know, um, things are here one day and then they're gone the next. Like, things just kind of happen. Um, and then as she gets into town, we, we begin meeting each of her friends, like, one by one before they all eventually meet up together. Uh, so the first one uh, we meet is Chisa, um, who, when they they are talking and hanging out and taking photos and things like that... Um, just being chipper little high school girls, um, they encounter a man who decides uh, to, you know, he wants to go have have breakfast. I assume, like when when they're in Shinjuku proper, it is ten a.m. So this first date that they go on, uh, they go on together. Uh, Hiromi and Chisa go together, um, but they go to a shabu shabu uh, restaurant and have have a meal with this man uh, who pays them, I think about $500 uh, in today's standings. Yeah. Uh, it's roughly that. I think, um, which I, I kind of forgot. So we'll, we'll go back to a second before that we <laughs> see her, we see Hiromi avoiding a man who is trying to, to get her to go on a date and show her his car and all this. And when she's talking to, to Chisa, um, she, she talks about how like, she doesn't like to do that stuff. By herself, and that also she did try it once, by like over the phone, and this guy tried to meet with her that was wearing a Chicago Bulls uh, cap. That was gonna be like how how she would know it was him, um, but then she got cold feet and didn't go. And just She's a Hornets fan, so yes. <laughs> and then they go have um, a meal with this guy who uh, they are just kind of eating all they can, like getting the most mm-hmm. out of this guy uh, and kind of ignoring him for the most part to which he starts berating them for like not having direction, like not, you have to get to be into something, anything or else to end up in a, a no good college mm-hmm. with a no good job and a no good marriage. Um, yeah. He, well, again, he's doing all this with these girls that are, his daughter's age, or at least yes, he literally brings up his daughter and how uh, she goes to a particularly prestigious high school in the area that uh, keeps popping up in the narrative. So, so Hiromi makes it to uh, Shinjuku and meets with now um, who they are then harassed by a very strange uh, individual. Um, He is very, what's I, I can't think of a good way of, of describing this. He's very energetic mm-hmm. and he's very much like kind of answering his own questions or his own jokes as he tries to proposition uh now in Hiromi. He he's of everyone they encounter for the for these paid dates, he is the most aggressive. Mm-hmm. Yet he is I'd say the most benign. He yes. doesn't he's, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's not berating them. He's like genuinely like Hey, I like to make a bunch of food. Please eat up. Just just hang out with me because, you know, I can't finish all this food and I still have the habit of making food. And he's like very all this Italian cuisine that like he makes a caprese salad. He makes some spaghetti. And then, then uh, I guess the big the minestrone, like, which he started the previous night. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing the now I think now uh, for now, her thing, her sort of mini arc was 
and this might be previously where it's just like she's trying to she's building this computer she's also trying to lose weight but then she just sort of goes whole hog on this spaghetti mm-hmm. um and like this honestly the way it's, it's like this proto mukbang <laughs> sort of way mm-hmm. uh, uh, of filming it yeah um so she she sees that she is 50 something kilograms and decides she wants to diet which just means she's not eating um mm-hmm. So that means she is between 130 to 110 pounds. It's like, she is tiny. Yeah. She does not need to diet. Like, it's already so funny. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's not. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think a lot of the decisions these girls make aren't healthy. (laughs) Oh, yes, definitely. Um, Uh, I guess I should also say that um, since we are talking about high schoolers a lot in this film, uh, Japanese high school is only three grades. Um, is from when you were 16 to 18. So anything before that would be like junior high. But that is just something to keep in mind. It is not as long as uh, it is in America. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yes. So uh, now is both obsessed with computers or obsessed with like her computer and trying to diet, which she just absolutely gives in when this dude puts down like a table's worth yes. of like Italian food. And like he talks about how like he had to like substitute certain things because they weren't like basically like in season or they were difficult to get a heart difficult to get a hold of at the time, or like there was an E. coli scare. So he's like swapping out things, making sure the meat is like cooked all the way through, all this stuff. He's just like really into cooking. Um but the way that he came about, like trying to get these girls to come on this date with him or come to his house so that he could cook for them, was just so aggressive uh, that it's it's just a very interesting to see the sort of uh, the the polar opposites of of his his both his approach and what ends up happening. This whole movie is are these snippets, mm-hmm. and it's these girls. A lot of the time, it's these girls just encountering these. From these men from ranging from interesting to horrible. Yeah. Um, and the, it's over oh, because like overall it's a, a coming of age story. And yes, very it much is so. the story of Hiromi growing up some and growing growing up to realize about friends and like how you know you only get so much time with the people that are around you, especially in mm-hmm. high school, and kind of coming to terms with realizing that her friends, at least to her eye, are maturing faster than her. And that's part of like the impetus for the plot, is yeah. that her feeling of kind of inferiority to her friends. Yeah, very much so. Um, like kind of jumping outside of the, the, the narrative, or like the linear, linearity of the narrative. Um, like we see how each of these girls has like a particular thing that they are trying to do. Like um, Chisa is into dancing. She is getting very good at dancing. She has, we learned that she gets an agent and is planning of dropping out of high school to go become a professional dancer. Now is into her computer. She's like very devoted to her, her computer. She spent all this time and money on getting it. Um, Chieko, when we meet her, like she comes off as this very, mature person like she talks about you know going on lots of subsidized dates 
um, many of them ending up with her having sex with the the man, and you know she she presents this very mature adult kind of thing, and uh, we kind of learned during one of their talks that it's partially because of like her home situation and her mother, which. Uh, Haromi says that they don't talk about it. And that's the reason that all four of them are friends is because we know not to ask. Oh, but Haromi, she has her, her camera that we see her using throughout a lot of the film. Um, and that's something that she saved up and, and bought so that she could take pictures to remember all of her friends and all of these moments and things like that. Um, but then when she sees all of her other friends, she becomes very insecure about how mature she is. Um, and something else we see is uh, uh, Chieko talking to her about like, hey, getting your your nails done, getting them like you know manicured and, and uh, painted and, and and things like that. And uh, when she goes to to get her nails done, she you know she asks for like help and things like that. But um, she also I think kind of imprints a little bit on the the lady that helps her because mm-hmm. she she looks at her in her hands she sees this ring on her hand which becomes kind of a another thing but I think she she sees this woman and she sees her as being very mature and kind of wanting to emulate her to a certain degree um, which which we'll we'll see as we get a little bit further into the the plot where once all four of the girls eventually meet up. Um, they will go, you know, bathing suit shopping, and then uh, Hiromi immediately picks out one. She has already like researched it, has it ready to go, and then she they, they go look for accessories. Um, while the others are still deciding, um, she sees a ring that she likes. Um, she tries it on, and then you know she has to put it back. And she asks how much it is because there isn't a price listed. They give a price number which is about thirteen hundred dollars, and that's on sale. Yeah, it's. Um, it's a it's and, a topaz ring, wink wink, mm-hmm. the, a nod to the book. Although I don't know if that's the <laughs> plot of the book is that she's going after a topaz ring. Yeah, that kind of becomes her her driving force throughout the rest of the film. After that, is she wants to go and get money to be able to buy this ring before the store closes at nine p.m. In between all of that, um, we get a couple of dates, both. Uh, eventually with Harumi by herself, but initially with all four of the girls. Um, and then we get little glimpses into each of their lives and like how, how they think and how they react to certain things, what their goals and desires are. Um, it's at that point that, you know, we learned that like Harumi has uh, a, a boyfriend that um, she basically, whenever she wants to, to talk to him or hear his voice, he's never available. But whenever, uh, he wants to talk to her. It's always a bad situation. Like she's in class or something like that. So she ends up getting her mm-hmm. phone confiscated, things like that. Another thing that is actually going on while uh, the, the four girls are, are hanging out is uh, now received a phone from a strange man at the uh, Hachiko statue where uh, he wants her and her friends, like just people to leave messages on the phone so that boys can call it. This man's trying to get the numbers of young boys is yes. sort of the, the scam. Yeah. And he's using the girls as a bit of, yeah, like a honeypot essentially. Yeah, basically. Um, so they, they leave voicemails on the phone, but then after that, they're allowed to use the phone as much as they want. They can use it for all sorts of calls, anything like that, which, you know, in the nineties is, Hey, that's a, that's a good deal. You don't have to pay for mm-hmm. the phone bill. Hell Yeah. Uh, but that's a, a thing that they keep bringing about, and they eventually get like calls and use it as a, a, a communication device. Um, but yeah, I, 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 
it's real it's fairly straightforward like the rest of the movie is you know uh chico and now or no chico and chisa both seem to be sort of like the oldest and like the most knowledgeable about enjo kosai the the subsidized dating um so when they learn how much the 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 ring is they hunt down this guy they saw and convince him to take them all to karaoke for basically the cost of the ring which he agrees to and then on the way he has says he has a, a request that he wants um but they'll talk about it at the karaoke they you know chico tells him hey no like groping or, or pictures or anything mm-hmm. like that he's like no no nothing like that so they go to karaoke <laughs> Uh, they sing a bunch of like old songs and like some newer songs. There's like a uh, Chieko reveals that she knows like these older, some of these older songs because of like her going to dates with older men, things like mm-hmm. that. Um, and then uh, after they're singing, he brings out a thing of, of muscats, which I think are just a type of grape. I believe so. <laughs> yes. Because um, Mus- Mus- Moscato is a champagne. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's a, yes, it's a, a wine or a champagne, but yes, muscats are a type of, of grape. They're like a large type of grape. Um, but he brings out this like container of grapes and he has like these little sealed Petri like sample containers. And he wants all four of the girls to just slightly chew these grapes, spit it out. Uh, he'll take it, put it in the container and then he'll mark it with like whatever name or like information that they give him. He even says like, you can make it up. If you want to make sure it's not too plain or not too exaggerated or anything like that, but just give me a name and then all four of them do it. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves after giving and them the money. And that's the end. It's incredibly strange. It, yeah, it is. It's a scene that out of everything in this movie, and I think we kind of, once you know like the premise and you're going in, I think you kind of you know things are going to go poorly, yeah, right on on some of these dates. And this is really the first one, first date where something odd is happening, and they do foreshadow a bit where he's like, "Oh, I got something," but but wait, don't don't worry now. Yeah, and it's, like it's the it's the first time that you get something sinister. Not just kind of weird. Like the mm-hmm. guy making all the food is just a little weird. This feels there's something about like him like taking the grapes as like samples feels kind of malicious in some weird unknowable way. And it's yeah, it's we. This man is never mentioned again. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't like come back. It's it doesn't go into like any sort of fantastical element. It's it's just. Never in a million, if you had to guess what came next in the scene, never in a million years would I have guessed this. Yeah. Exactness. And yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think it's the most unsettling scene in the movie. It's not, it's not the worst scene in the movie, but I, no, if that were, it's, it's like that, it's a perfect border line, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of like, this is, this is horrible, but it's not, and it's like there's a weird innocence to it on top of everything that just, yeah, that makes it unsettling. It's like, and, it, and it's it's definitely the movie like saying like, okay, you need to you need to pay attention now because it's also mm-hmm. one of the more. So I'm I'm kind of scrubbing through this as we're talking, 
but mm. it's also one of the more conventionally shot scenes. Yeah. With sort of close up cross it's like a bunch of close ups cross cutting. You do get some like you see under the you the camera's like under the briefcase and you see through all the petri dishes of the other mm-hmm. uh there's the, the other uh, grapes. Yeah. There's a lot of shots in this film that is just where can we put the camera? <laughs> Breaking I mean, Bad, eat your heart out. I, Vince I, Gilligan, I, I, look, Vince Gilligan yeah. watched Love and Pop. Confirmed. <laughs> Season 10 Season is 15, us. Season 15, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. I thought it was just going to be, I thought it was just going to be us, uh, you know, harassing directors, asking if they've seen certain anime. <laughs> I don't know where the insane camera work comes from of like, it's, I, it's, it's an Evangelion. It's an, it's, you see it in Evangelion for sure. Yes. But not, so, not like this. So I think it's, it's, this movie is shot like anime to a, a lot, a, a very, a very big degree. Like there's lots of shots of just very unusual angles places where you could not normally put a camera or it feels like you shouldn't necessarily put a camera that you would see in like animation because animation you do whatever. Um, but it feels like Anno wanted to try and do as much of that as he could in this live action film. So like you said, we get a lot of like looking up through an object, like, you know, there's a bunch of um, like looking up through the Petri dishes, looking up through like the soup bowl, uh, or, like the soup pan when the guy was cooking earlier uh, shots from like inside of microwaves. There's um, whenever Hiromi is talking about her dreams, the camera is on a train track, like a model train train track as it like makes its way through uh, uh, a scene that also harkens back to uh, Evangelion because a lot of times when she's talking about her dreams, it's uh, in this sort of sound stage area that is very reminiscent of the scenes that we'd see Shinji uh, towards the end of Evangelion. Not the end of Evangelion, the movie, but the end, like one of the final episodes of Evangelion, um, where, you know, it's like a soundstage. There's all these lights and things like that. It's very, like, you know, real looking. Um, so, yeah, like it's he tries to put the camera wherever he can, and it ends up with some very unusual and very striking visual styles. And then, you know, we'll have scenes like this where, a karaoke room in Japan is going to be very cramped. So those scenes do feel very cramped, but they're like you said, very conventionally sort of shot. Um, just all, it's just all very tight. Yeah. feels there's a, I, and I think we have to mention the technology that's mm-hmm. involved in this, where this is not a traditional 35 millimeter film. This is, fairly early days of digital video. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget if we talked about Dogma 95. In, in You know what? We probably did it in Cowboy Bebop. That sounds like something I'd do. <laughs> but <laughs> but for, for those that don't know, it was this... In, it was this movement slash sort of idea... Uh, that was proliferated by these different filmmakers, uh, one of them being Lars von Trier. Uh, and it was kind of this this manifesto that they did that was saying, here are some rules we're going to follow in filmmaking uh, and as sort of a sort of bringing things back to basic. 
getting away from like the special effects. So part of that dogma was like, you have to shoot on location. Um, you can't bring props in. The camera always has to be handheld. Um, optical work and filters are for forbidden. Uh, the film must not contain superficial action. You can't do genre movies. Um, j just a bunch of different things that sort of as kind of a kickstart. And it coincided with um, the idea of uh, and, and the technology of these mini digital cameras that were super small, um, super cheap. They had a better quality than like, say, VHS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and part of the attraction was also the fact that it recorded, it still recorded a tape, but instead of recording it magnetically, it recorded it digitally. So the tape kind of acted as just a hard drive in a sense. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you weren't worrying about like um, degradation over generations. Um, it was easier to bring into, which, I mean, they were still newish during this time, but you could go into like an avid system and edit this video. You could, it was easy to digitize. Um, but these cameras are tiny they can kind of go anywhere. So I think that definitely added, uh, to it. And it seems like, so the last scene in the movie, the end credits there, there's a whole sequence that was planned to be shot on film. Uh, the last sequence is shot on like film. So I'm sure he had access to it, but he definitely made a choice mm -hmm. to shoot it this way. I think because of, uh, because it allowed him to do the things that he did in this movie. Um, it's way cheaper than film um, mm -hmm. at this time. Um, and I think he could, yeah, I think he just could do more of the things he wanted to do a wide array of angles, but I don't, but it's not willy nilly. Like I may, I make a joke about the crotch angle POVs cause they're there, but it's mm -hmm. like, he somehow did this male gazy movie. That's like, I don't know if it's reverse male gaze where like in some shots, it's the object of the male gaze is looking back. Yeah. At us, the audience. Like, cause like you never see, like there are shots that are low that would be looking up like, these girls skirts or you know that sort of angle but you never you never see anything one and then like you said there are shots where it is from the skirt looking out and that's it's I, i'm wondering if there's an an actual intention there or if it's just like is he is he going for what you're saying is he going for a sort of reverse male gaze or is it just this seems like it would be neat to do yeah because with Anno, i feel like it's like a 50 50 <laughs> it could be both it could just be like i saw it in an episode of ultraman so here we go yeah yeah in in film and i think in film criticism it's the idea that Everything you are seeing on screen is a choice by the director, by an actor, by a cinematographer, by a crew, per by an editor. Everything you see is a choice. And where I think we get the problem is that sometimes we think every choice is intentional. And that's mm -hmm. like literally what the premise of this podcast is. But like sometimes in again, my limited experience is like, I don't know, man, sometimes you had like, the choice was I had like five minutes left in the day and we had to get it done. Or I was super tired. 
Yeah. And that's why I made this choice or there's a better choice, but we ran out of time. You know, it's, but I, I think you're right on the like 50, 50, it's half cool shots, half like I have like this intention to, and I'm actually saying something with the choice of this shot. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. Cause I, I wonder, I wonder if this is kind of, because I mean, this movie is obviously has a very sort of like sexual connotation to it. And, you know, it, they have characters, they have these girl characters who talk about, like, you know, having had sex, masturbating, um, but also, like, her, like, Hiromi talks about her her sensual desire is to just be held by her boyfriend. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if some of these camera angles are intended to invoke something of a teenage... A teenage like sexuality, like a a mm-hmm. that that kind of blossoming into being adult and having those desires. If there is some sort of if they're trying, if he's trying to go for some sort of meaning with the the, the shots that he chose or the camera positions that they decided to try. If there's something on that level that they were trying to go for, I think that's definitely can the argument for that can be made because it it's this is it's this movie's very expressionistic mm-hmm. um like so as we getting back a little bit on the plot of mm-hmm. Hiromi not wanting to take the money from their grape date um to that sounded horrible from their karaoke date um you know wanting to earn the money herself for yeah. the ring as sort of this stand saying I'm also mature and I can do this on my own and I want us yes. to all be equals in maturity. Um, you get this long sequence of her, you know, calling the numbers, trying to see what guys are out there that are willing mm-hmm. to di- willing to pay her for a date, listening to all these voicemails. And then it's just like shots of her, shots of the city, shots of other things just laid mm-hmm. on top of each other. Um, I do want to go back for just a second mm-hmm. to the beginning of your point when she is refusing to take all of the money for her reign. That shot itself is very different from the rest of the film because they're all in like this small spot and they're looking at the money and she refuses to take all of it. Cause like you said, she wants all of them to be equal. She doesn't want to take all of this money from her friends. She was said, all four of us did it. We want, to do that but she can't quite get those words out but during this entire scene the frame itself is super squashed like it's normally like you know a, a something closer to like a 16-9 frame but in this moment it is like a god I'm trying to think of what the actual ratio is like a one and by a quarter size frame like everybody's just super squashed for some reason they're all in this super tight spot and there's literally a tight spot when you're watching it. The, the the black columns on the side of the screen take up like 60 to 70% yeah. of the, the, the screen it, now. It's it's like anamorphic flipped on its side. It's, yeah. It's yeah, squeezed yeah, yeah. in. Yeah. And then, so, so like you're saying, it's very impressionistic. And then as we go into what you were talking about, her doing all the calls. Yeah. So she's trying to see who to meet with. She's seeing other girls have success. She, Mm -hmm. she's, again, I think she's going into this how I think she thinks an adult would act. She's Mm -hmm. doing bookkeeping. She's like, on the screen, like, this is how much time we got. We get like a mission statement, like, 
this is how much money she has. This is how much money she needs to make. This is how much time she has. And then we get like little updates throughout the rest of the film. Yeah. It, it's got to, she's like, it's got to happen before nine. That's when the store closes. Mm-hmm. So she finally decides on a guy that seems innocent. His whole intention is, hey, I want, I just want you to walk around with me uh, and pretend to be my girlfriend. I want to go to the store with you. I also want to go to the video store. I don't want to go home and watch a movie with you. I just want you to be in the store with me. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure she picks him because he sounds, he is the least aggressive out of mm-hmm. anyone in this movie. Um, uh, on the way there uh, in the taxi. And she's just, she's just like, every decision she's making is like making her spend money. <laughs> Which she, mm-hmm. which she is regretting, but you got You got to spend money to make money, baby. It's it's a business. <laughs> she then gets on the phone with the owner of the phone, who apparently is doing. He's a writer and working yeah. on a story, uh, a, a TV writer, and working on a story about compensation dating. And that's sort of how the how the phone got there. Um, and it's he'll he'll come to play later. But we meet her date. Uhara, and he he's just nasty. He's a nasty boy. He's a gross guy. Um, he has, I think I read one article that was like, this guy has Tourette's, and I'm like, maybe. Yeah, no, he does describe it essentially as Tourette's. He he spits. That's his that's his tick. Yeah. Um, and he he and again, back to camera angles, we get it is horrible because we get um Uhara's POV as he's just uh-huh. looking up her looking Hiromi up and down while on the side we get her POV of 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 him just it looks like he's sniffing her. It's horrible. Yeah, is very like a little bit of like fisheye, very close, is it's very gross. He talks about how like he basically just doesn't bathe because he works construction. So why would he clean all this? dirt and stuff off of him <laughs> when he's just going to get dirty again the next day. So he just doesn't bathe and it's so gross. Oh my the, God, this dude sucks. The platonic ideal of bachelor. <laughs> yes. It's yeah, it's horrible. Um, but he's, so what you need to know is that this motherfucker is doing a scam. Cause he goes there and he's like, Hey, I didn't need to look at you. And if I do, and if I don't decide, if I don't want to go along with it, you know what? Yeah. It, I'm not going to do the date. So he looks at her. He's like, you know what? I don't want to do this. Here's money for the cab. Actually, wait, let me walk you to where you can get a cab. And then he's like, oh, wait, there's this video store. Why don't you just walk in here with me? So essentially he's, he like, you know, inch at a time. Yeah. Tricks her into going on the date without paying. And the whole reason he wants to do this thing is that when he goes to this video store, everyone thinks he's gross because he's gross. And this is like his revenge of like, they said I could never get a girlfriend because I smelled bad, but I'll show them. Ha ha. Um, So yeah. And Hiromi is, she's, oh God. Yeah. She's just, she's going along with it. He's like, here, wrap your arm around me. Let's go look at some videos again. I don't want to write anything. I just want to look. And just they pick something go, out. Just pick something out. Yeah. 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 Um, they head to the pornography section. Uh-huh. And Which, boy, <laughs> If you have ever wanted to know what Japanese pornography titles sound like, this is this is certainly a scene 
because a lot of them just like basically are read aloud in Hiromi's head uh, as she is kind of being forced into this this section of the video store. Yeah, it's he, the this is a horrible scene, but the best title is Evil Sisters Hunting Male Roots. <laughs> <laughs> as far as sort of sort of on the uh, the not horrible scale. <laughs> If if you want a very funny but kind of gross Twitter follow, JAV titles is a good one because it I is do just follow bad. them and it's very funny. <laughs> it's very funny. Also, um, as we get into like this very gross part of this scene, uh, we get a shot of like the CC cameras, the closed circuit cameras, the security cams basically of this store. And like the four the four titled like cameras we see are anime, adult one, adult two, Pacino. The the four heavenly kings of of the video store. <laughs> Those are the four genres. <laughs> I just then, think it's very funny. They have a, a an entire section devoted to Pacino. <laughs> yeah, they know they they know where trouble's gonna get caused. Yeah, then, so this piece of shit grabs her hand, puts it in down his pants. Uh, he begins to masturbate to completion. Um, and I think you had mentioned earlier, this is where we get our End of Evangelion reference. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we get a bit of a, a Shinji moment, unfortunately, with Hiromi. It is very gross. Yeah. I'm so fucked up. Correct. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, so yeah, the moment that this happens, Hiromi's like, ah, all right, I'm out of here. It's yeah. We, I think we joke because it's, it's a horrible scene and very uncomfortable, yes. but it's, I don't think the scene is played for laughs, but it's, I it's feel so like, outrageous. I think that's it. Cause like the stuff coming up ahead is becomes deadly serious for sure. Mm-hmm. More so. Um, where this is, yeah, it's like he's just too pathetic and like the situation is too insane. And the fact that you gave us a minute montage of porn titles doesn't <laughs> doesn't like make it's horrible, but it, it's yes. it, it's it's this whole movie is I will say about this movie, I think it rides the line of being exploitative and unwatchable versus like thought provoking and entertaining. Just, just Mm -hmm. really well. He, Anno is like deep in the pocket of what this movie needs to be and how it needs to present itself. Yes. I think, I think, um, I think this movie does exactly like what what you're saying. It it rides that line very well. I think this is a movie that um, you definitely need to be aware of what it is about before going into it, Um, especially from a, you know, a Western point of view. But uh, so, you know, I wouldn't just recommend somebody off the street (laughs) go watch Love and Pop. But, you know, I would say, hey. Do you want to watch a very interesting and evocative film about this particularly kind of heinous thing that exists in Japan? Like, it is a kind of coming-of-age story about this girl who who decides to do these things, and uh, it doesn't get... It gets bad. It doesn't get extremely awful, but it does get pretty bad at times. Um, But it is a a very interesting film. 
Yeah, I think if you're, I was about to say like, if you're a casual Anno fan, those don't exist. There's no such thing as a casual Evangelion fan. <laughs> I don't believe <laughs> no. it. Um, but like, I think if you're, this is not a difficult transition from Evangelion to this movie. No, especially I think if you are watching the original series and the original movies, mm-hmm. um, I can see where like him coming off of that, coming off of Love and Pop, or actually I think he's about to go into Love and Pop at this point. Uh, yes, not, uh, not Love and Pop. His and her circumstances, Karikano. Karikano comes right after this, but um, coming off of Evangelion into Love and Pop, but pre Karikano, um, you 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 see the Ano in it. Like I said, there's certain parts of this that feel like it is just live action versions of stuff you see in Evangelion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, I mean, I don't think we talked about it in our Anno series, but he in, if when we cover Evangelion, I think this is something to keep in mind of just, he's real good at making, like uh, doing stories about teens. He's real mm-hmm. good at it. Like he, he gets it. And I think he gets it w- without in a, in like a non saccharine uh, or like rose tinted sort of view. Cause I think a lot of, older folks who do who are good at teen stories and young adult stories like like a richard linklater like a days mm. confused and like that it's very uh-huh. it's definitely the, like this you're you're dealing with these teen and young adult subjects but it's super romanticized where this is like actually it's horrible to be this age yeah it's it's rough growing up mm-hmm. and it and it's confusing and like the if if Anno teaches us nothing else. It's just like how to real, how to like visualize emotions in like mm-hmm. a very in like a truly cinematic way, and truly in a way that like vi- a visual, you know, motion moving images can really only do. Yeah, he, there's a lot of um, scenes where Hiromi is either uh, you know she gets lost in memory, things like that, where. Uh, Sometimes she'll be like over underlaid on like sort of a, a sort of dreamy, semi-transparent um, montage of just things that they're going on around her or like her memories, things like that. There's one earlier, I think, during the karaoke scene, actually, that um, like she's thinking about like her family and like growing up and things like that. And we see all these like wonderful little memories as she's she's, you know, thinking about what it is that she's doing. And it's very striking. I think that combined with like the musical choices really stand out. Mm -hmm. (sighs) He's a master of the art form. (laughs) And like, (laughs) it's a shame that most people just think of him as like a dude who makes giant robot. (laughs) Yeah. Animes, which he does. And he does that really well too. But like, Mm -hmm. it's, I think the Shin movies are really gonna let people see even though I know it's it's Higuchi who did the Shin Ultraman, technically. Yeah. Um, but like what well, what I, I forget if I talked about this before, but there was some on the show at least, but there was some letterbox comment where it was like Anno could have done any blockbuster after Evangelion, but instead he did, decides to do these like weird indie flicks. Yeah. And it's like that's yeah, he 
he could he could do a lot. He can he he's a master of the form, and it's incredible to see it. Honestly, yeah. like his first two like live action things after Evangelion is Love and Pop. This weird sort of really grimy, gritty, experimental coming of age film, like shot almost entirely on like like nascent digital cameras about that's based on a book off of like you know compensating dating and then shikijitsu which uh Mm -hmm. is again like another very sort of art art film i don't think it's uh, you you saw shikijitsu right yeah it's it's basically about being sad and and suicide um it's not quite as experimental i think um no it's it's I think, yeah, his budget went more into um, kind of the visuals of everything, mm-hmm. sort of like production design. Right. Um, and, yeah, he just kind of focused on these two. He toned it down for sure. Right. But and he does those. And then the next thing after that is cutie honey. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Like it, it's, it's so wild. Uh, but, you know, when you are – moving from the animation to the live action space, I feel like having these sort of smaller films, these smaller, more experimental, experimental films allows you to kind of get your feet under you to kind of get to kind of better parse the language of like live action cinema as opposed to, to animation. I've been yelling about this to my other film friends, people who are in the, people who work in film for years at least, uh, but I think it's just, it's it's a Hollywood problem of like, oh hey, you you made this film that you made this little film for a million. Uh, okay, cool. Here's a hundred million. Now you're making yeah. Jurassic Park Lost World or Jurassic <laughs> World. Now you're making the Last Jedi. Yeah. Oh, you made you made an indie movie in Mexico for like half a mil. I guess you can make Godzilla. Yeah. Here you go. And it's like people you have to develop. And it it's like directing is such a weird job. And it's not and it encompasses so many things. It's hard to like get those get those, you know, those like Gladwell said, you gotta get those hours in. So it's Mm -hmm. difficult to do that. And it's probably even more difficult when you have when you go from like little baby budget to all the money in the world and like a hundred yeah. new bosses. That's, you know, that is unfortunately the state of uh, modern major motion pictures is that it can't be like a middle level film. It has to be a humongous blockbuster or it has to be made on pocket change. Yeah. It's the, the middle class of film has, has eroded just and it's in its numbers. And that's really, it's, it's, it's because those are the things that make money. Nothing else does yeah. slash we don't want to do that. Every, uh, okay. <laughs> Once again, the problem is capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of capitalism, so, so Hiromi does get paid for her date with the super gross guy. Because oh. we get a scene of her like on a bridge counting the, the 50,000 yen that she managed to, to squeak out of that incredibly gross situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then she decides to go back through the list of phone calls and uh, follows up on one from a Captain EO. Now, EO is censored in the film, along with another name that ends with Ball. Uh, 
Um, all right. I so, so we're gonna like, talk about Captain EO now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this out of the way. Real quick, I do want to say that when I saw the, the subtitles and the censors, I'm like, erection? Because <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, he's on this hotline, and that's he's just yeah, cause, being cause Yeah. The way that Captain EO talks on the phone, he's like, Captain EO always come through. He has what you need. Like, yeah. very kind of slimy sounding, like very much like a party guy. Um, so... Uh, Harami goes to meet this Captain Eo, who again, played by Tadanabu Asano, very young at this point in time. Um, and his name and the, the name of his partner, quote unquote, who turns out to be a plush that he has, he carries with him, comes from the 1986 uh, Disney theme park short film, Captain Eo. This was a collaboration between Disney and... And Michael Jackson, who the film stars, the plot of the film was written by George Lucas and was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> okay. I've, I've been on this Rick ride. Baker did special effects for this. The, like, the level of talent that is on this short film is astounding. Um, it is 17 minutes long and cost 23 million dollars in 1986 at the time it was the single most expensive per minute film ever made um but michael jackson stars as captain eo who comes from the greek goddess of the dawn eos because he's bringing light to this world um it's a science fiction adventure attraction with like 3d effects all this stuff Angelica Houston is the villain um, who uh, Captain EO, Michael Jackson, turns into a, a defeats and turns into a beautiful woman through the power of his song. Um, one of the mascot characters is this sort of flying. I'm going to say it looks like a cross between a monkey and a possum with butterfly wings called Fuzzball. Yeah. Bas- any if there's if you're like, hey. It's the 80s, and I need a big, fluffy creature. That's what he looks mm-hmm. like. Yes, very much so. Um, so that's the basics of what you need to know about Captain EO. Um, I would highly recommend there's a Defunct Land video all about it. Uh, it's like 15, 20 minutes long. Um, just go search that out. Uh, but yes, like it is wild what this thing was about. So we learn in the film... As uh, Hiromi meets our Captain Eo, uh, well, first we learn that they both know Japanese sign language because uh, I don't know if we learn why he knows it, but we know Hiromi, we learn that Hiromi knows it because um, her mother used to volunteer and like helps her learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they decide that they're going to go to a uh, a love hotel. But on the way, they're talking, they're chatting about stuff, um, and he talks about how when uh, he was young as parents were getting divorced, like around the time that his parents were, were getting divorced, uh, they went to Disney world and he saw captain EO. He saw it. He loved it. He saw it so many times. Um, and his father bought him a fuzzball plush, um, that he carries around with him and talks to, he keeps it with him. But, um, it's, it's a moment that he shares with his father. That's super important to him. Uh, and that, 
his father gave Fuzzball a, a secret true name that he doesn't ever tell anybody. But but they talk about that sort of thing. Um, and then when they get to the Love Hotel, she's like, hey, I don't have that much time. Um, you know, it's getting late in the day. They go up to the room. And uh, as they're 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 talking a little bit more, um, he pulls Fuzzball out and his tail falls off. So uh, Harumi volunteers to fix him, and uh, she's also incredibly hungry. So they order food, right? Uh, chicken peel off, and then uh, once. So as we the the I think the key thing in this part of the scene is that when we see. Um, Harumi fixing like sewing Fuzzball's tail back on, we see some like seems like some conflict going on in in Captain EO where like he picks up his hat he's like looking at it he has to like tuck his he has his black bucket hat um, that he wears but he like tucks it back on he looks very frustrated um and then once that's done and she eats she goes to wash to which uh Captain EO barges in and begins to threaten her mm-hmm. he basically starts talking about how he was going to hurt her. And then he turns out he has like a, a stun gun that he was going to hurt her and then rape her and then steal our own money. Um, but because he both liked talking to her and he fixed, she fixed Fuzzball, um, he's not going to do that. He does um, basically leave her with the message that, hey, like, why are you doing this? Why are you here? Why are you naked in front of this stranger? Why are you doing something like this? Don't you know that there's somebody out there? who is half dead, dying of grief because you are doing this to yourself. Um, and that's, that's something that sticks with Harami after um, Captain Neo just leaves. Like he, he pays her the India amount, which is kind of gross, but he leaves her with like a couple of coins and, and leaves after taking the, the film out of her camera. Yeah. And, and the whole scene is like, it's from her POV. Yes. It's, for the most part, continuous once he gets into the bathroom. This, mm-hmm. yeah, this is, it's horrible. It's a, it's horrible to watch. It's horrible yeah. to, to, yeah. And, it, and it, it's frightening. Yes. Um, it's incredibly frightening. When he brings out the, the stun gun, mm-hmm. I was incredibly shocked. Like, it's, it's kind of amazing that it's just very intense. The entire scene is very, very intense and distressing, like, as, you know, it obviously should be. Yeah. And again, it's, I don't, it's, except for maybe the end shot, like the, the coins on her ain't great, Mm -hmm. but for the, like, for the most part, it's not exploitative and it's not like a thrill to watch this. It's like, no, this is like, again, it's putting you the uh, audience. I, I am curious what he was thinking. And like, I feel like there's something in his head while he was making this that was like, there's going to be a bunch of little freaks coming in (laughs) to watch this Mm -hmm. movie because it's about teens. And like, again, if you think about like the title of Love and Pop and like some of the, there's not a ton of like advertising. And I don't know if I think I've seen some of the Japanese like posters and then like the Americans. Mm -hmm. And it's very like, it features the girls, right? And so I think there is, I'm curious, it seems like he made this with the thought in mind that there were going to be people coming to watch this movie thinking that it's about, maybe thinking that it's like not this art house film, 
you know? I think it is a, a raunchier kind of yeah. film than it actually is. Yeah. And it, and it seems like a lot of the execution is in defiance of that expectation or that even that perceived like expectation of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, Hiromi sort of like, we do see a clock countdown that it's past nine. It's too late to yes. get the ring. Um, she meets the journalist and returns the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, in an earlier scene, uh, we do learn that uh, his cat is sick. So he has to take him to the vet. Um which I forget exactly why, but apparently like Hiromi holding onto the phone until now, like being able to meet him like this late, like helped save his cat's life, Mm -hmm. which I think it's just like one of those, one of those parts of the films. That's like this little, like innocuous kind of throwaway thing that um, just adds another little, just a little bit of a flavor to the overall film. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, it's a very tiny victory for Hiromi. Mm -hmm. On this, but then yeah, she she like returns home. Nothing like hero's journey well, stuff, right? Re- oh, is there well, something else? Hold on, there okay. is the one thing about the journalist that we do learn is that it's it's kind of implied that he was the guy that tried to meet her mm-hmm. during her first phone call. Um, he talks about being a writer and being an industry guy, and that's the same thing that um, the guy that she first called on the date that she backed out of said same thing and we get another flash of the red chicago bulls hat and i think it's actually implied to be on like the backpack that's behind him Mm -hmm. so uh it's another sort of like things kind of come full circle where it turns out like hey this guy is just you know like a a writer that wanted to meet somebody to kind of get more information about this this enjo cosi this compensated dating thing and then uh then yeah then she returns home Having having changed, <laughs> having having changed, mm-hmm. um, she she learns that her the film in her camera has been taken out, so she doesn't even mm-hmm. have that, and I think that makes it worse. She's Hiromi is a character that is trying to hold on mm-hmm. to almost everything around her versus all the change that's happening in her life. She does find a note. However, from, from our Captain EO that was stuffed inside of the um, the empty film container that uh, says, P.S. I'll tell you Fuzzball's real name, Mr. Love and Pop. CG whirlwind of objects, the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's it. That's Love and Pop. It, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I think it's like strong and refreshing in... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, it's nostalgic for me in the sense of like being shot on mini DV and Mm -hmm. me being interested in filmmaking during that time period. Um, cause you know, that really, that was the sort of big, that was the beginning of like the democratization of everything and like film wasn't as major of an investment. Um, so there, there's that aspect of it that I'm drawn to, but just trying something, like just trying visually trying something different yeah and like this could have been like this could have been like a like a really by the numbers movie Mm -hmm. but like they elevated it to to like the nth degree of what it could become yeah very much so like this could just be another sort of grim take on the the slice of life 
coming of age story, but there's just something about it that, um, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily just even like the subject matter, but like, I think the subject matter, the, the, the direction, the cinematography, everything about it just becomes this very fascinating film that, you know, is just, and uh, it's very interesting to watch. Like, I don't know how else to really kind of describe it other than it is, uh, I think it is a very good film that visually really kind of like grabs you and holds your attention. Yeah. It's he, he's trying to prove something. He, yeah, it's just, it's, it's solid. And honestly, it, I feel like it probably the best thing he could have done after Evangelion Mm -hmm. is say what's the complete opposite (laughs) and try it. Yes. It's, it's the opposite, but not, not all the way. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely still feel there's like some some things about the themes and sort of like the ideas presented in Evangelion, especially when it comes to the kids in that show that he managed to kind of pull on for the, the, the stuff that they put into Love and Pop. But it's also um, just different enough for like all the crazy fans of Evangelion at the time to like not harass him about. <laughs> Yeah, there. Um, oh, last thing I will. So, like, as we learned, Anna loves trains. He's a mm-hmm. train guy. Um, so that's. I definitely think that's part of why so many shots are on model trains, uh, mm-hmm. just the camera being on top of it. But I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if going through his head was the there the the symbolism of trains, particularly like trains through tunnels. Mm-hmm. And all that, I'm sure that's that was part of his thinking, or at least that's what I, that that's definitely what I guarded from it. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of train usage in in Ava as well. Like there are dozens and dozens of scenes of Shinji on on a train going home that you know uh, are very poignant. So yeah, like using that, like all the different ways you can kind of interpret a train and things like that. There's even in Love and Pop. When she gets home, her father has built this gigantic uh, train set in their living room, like we mentioned earlier. And like he's having so much fun with it, and and then he has to put it away. Like the his wife says, you know, you've had your fun. Now just make sure you put it up by tomorrow. He's like, oh man, not even an hour. My dream, my dream. It's not even been an hour yet, and I've got to <laughs> take it all apart. And you know, I think I think everybody kind of can kind of get that that hey you've you've reached this thing but it's not gonna last it's not gonna last forever even if it's like the thing that you wanted most in the world it's you know things only last a certain amount of time and yeah. the dad's trains Hiromi's friendships with the three other girls all that stuff eventually it's gonna change and go away yeah this movie rules <laughs> yeah like I'm, I, I'm, I very much enjoyed it I'm glad we're able to finally get a hold of it through very legal means, incredibly uh, legal means. It's, um, I mean, it's on YouTube. How that's the most legal you can get, right? <laughs> Nothing on YouTube has ever gotten anyone arrested. Nope, or in any kind of trouble. Um, um, oh, I did want to mention that uh, according to Captain EO, Fuzzball's favorite film is Le Démarche de Vie d'Arvey. Which is uh, in English is Sundays in Sibel and Sundays and Sibel, which is a 1962 French film. French film uh, that 
is a, a tragedy of about a young girl who befriends an innocent but emotionally disabled veteran of the French Indochina War. Um, and from the description of it, I have not had a chance to see it. It sounds uh, exactly that. It, it, uh, a, a young girl befriends a, uh, a war veteran who uh, has amnesia from a, a crash, crash landing his plane that uh, appears to have killed a, a young Vietnamese girl. Um, but they become... Uh, they become friends, and then a, a misinterpretation of their relationship ends with uh, the police killing uh, Pierre, the man. Um, spoilers, I guess. <laughs> uh, so I, I I feel like I'd have to see it to kind of better interpret that, but I definitely feel like there's definitely a an intention there for that being Fuzzball's film and how that relates to the rest of yeah. Love and Pop, or at least the situation between Captain EO and uh, Hiromi. I do believe the end credits, like you were saying, are shot on full like 35 millimeter or something close to it, mm-hmm. where they're just walking through an aqueduct. Um, it is like full screen, full 16 by 9, or, or whatever the appropriate uh, ratio is there. I am not, I'm not, I am not the expert yeah. on that it, stuff here. It, it looks like 185. Which is close to, which is one eight five is not exactly sixteen by nine. Right, right. It, it's they're they're real close. So we'd like to thank you all very much for joining us for this special episode. Uh, we are both very excited to to see that this uh, this rip of Love and Pop ended up on YouTube, which hopefully is still up by the time you are hearing this. Um, Hopefully, also by the time you're hearing this, we'll have decided on what our, our next season is going to be. But uh, if not, just keep an eye on our Twitter, if that's still a thing that exists <laughs> by the time you're listening to this. Because, who oh boy, it's it's still real up in the air. Um, but you can follow us at Thinking Anime. Um, you can also email us at thinkingtohardpod at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing. If you have any questions or comments or anything like that, please, please, please let us know. Um, you can also rate and review us on your podcasting application of choice. Uh, it helps us, you know, go up in the ratings, things like that. It helps more people see it. And, you know, speaking of people seeing it or listening to it i should say uh tell your friends if you have friends that are like anime and need uh, uh, an anime podcast recommend us we'd really appreciate it um you can find me on twitter and pretty much any place really uh i am at common otaku that's k-a-m-e-n-o-t-a-k-u uh twitter is probably the best place to get a hold of me but i also have a, a tumblr and a twitch channel that are both under uh that handle uh so yeah check it out aaron i hello hi the best place to find me on the internet is through my other podcast kame house party where myself and my co-host vince white are attempting to go through every episode of dragon ball that has ever existed uh we do improv comedy based on what we watched uh so you can the same the same place you're listening to this show you can you can find it uh we also stream uh, at least once a week, every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern over at twitch.tv slash Party, where we play a variety of games and have a variety of fun. Um, I don't, yeah, awesome. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, when this comes out, who knows what we'll be doing? <laughs> Probably talking who, about. Who knows? Well, we'll have to figure that out. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, once again, thank you all for listening. 
Uh, we hope you have enjoyed the show. And until next time, I've been Noah Card. I've been Aaron J. Shelton. And we've been thinking too hard. 